Well, if you would, turn in your copies of Scripture with me to Romans chapter 9. We're in verses 14 through 18 this morning. It's Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. This is a little bit off-center. It's kind of throwing me off. I'm going to move this just a little bit here. <laughs> that was going to bother me the whole 30 minutes or so. All right, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. And hear this as it really is, God's word to us, his encouragement, his comfort, his challenge, his exhortation to us, his beloved people. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our key truth for this passage, what I'm hoping we walk away with this morning, is this. God's mercy in Christ is the firm foundation upon which the church takes up her mission for the life of the world. God's mercy in Christ is the firm foundation upon which the church takes up her mission for the life of the world. Now, the burden of this sermon, um, like Cameron's from last week, from verses 6 to 13 of this chapter, is really to reassure and convict us with the truth that God's sovereign election in the salvation of his people is the foundation of mission. It's not the foundation for us to feel high and mighty about ourselves. It's not the foundation for us just to kind of approach these verses and feel overwhelmed or totally perplexed. No, it's the foundation for the mission of the church. The church has a mission. Christ Community Church has a mission. We're here for a reason. We're meant to be doing something. And that mission is to be disciples who make disciples. If you've been around with us for any length of time, you've heard that phrase, the mission of our church, the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, is to be disciples, so to grow. And what Romans 9, 6 through 13, and verses makes other disciples, it's founded upon, it rests upon God's own initiative to make us what we are, disciples of Jesus, and God's own initiative to call us into a work that he is doing to make other people disciples of Jesus. And so I think this raises a question for us as we think, all right, how do we take that from the realm of sort of abstraction and apply it very concretely to the here and now, to the everyday workaday lives that we live? A question for us, what does it take to make a difference for good in your various spheres of influence? And here I'm just kind of thinking about the way that you live day to day, your, your family life, your work life, if you're involved in your community. What does it, make to make it, what does it take to make a difference in Ackworth? In the local community of Ackworth, or the community of Kennesaw, or Marietta, or Canton, or Cartersville, what does it take to make a difference for good in the various spheres of influence that you live in, that God's called you to? Now, like me, perhaps you've been gripped from time to time with a thought, really it's, it's, it's more like a hope, a hope that there ought to be a difference for good in the lives of the people that I come into contact with because I came into contact with them, Right? 
And, and there's a sense in which, if, again, if you're like me, you can kind of have that thought and that hope and then think, well, that seems kind of arrogant because I know my own weakness and I know my own sin, so how can it possibly be that I could make a difference for good in, in everybody's lives that I come into contact with? No matter how, you know, not, not like in big stuff, but maybe it's trivial, maybe it's small, but how do I make a difference for good in the lives of the people I come into contact with? It may seem random, but I just having this thought because we drove up to Virginia last week and went through uh, the mountains of Tennessee and Western Virginia. It's so beautiful, and you kind of pull off when you need gas or just a rest stop, you know, into these little towns that most of them, you know, if you just kind of blink, you're, you're already through them. And so they're kind of out of the way and a little bit sleepy. And you stop at a gas station and you maybe talk to the clerk, like, all right, what would it mean for me to be a Christian in, in that moment to make a difference for good in the life of this person that probably I'm never going to see again in my life? And, and is that too much to hope for? So what would it be like for me to be a Christian? Well, is, is there an obligation to be a Christian in that moment? Like, what does that look like? Now, so, so that's not a light thing to dream because we're weak and we're sinful and it's often perplexing and confusing. I mean, that's just a small example. Now think about how would you be a difference for good in the lives of those who are closest to you, in the lives of your spouse or your children, people who really know how rotten and sinful you can be. Like, maybe, is that just totally gone? You know, I have to think about how you build a friendship and, and it seems so easy when you build a friendship early on because you don't really know the other person. And so it's easy to project all your idealistic traits onto that other person. But the moment that relationship really starts to become familiar and intimate, the, really, the moment you really become known, all of that is shattered. So does that mean we can only make a difference for good on the early stages of a friendship before we really get to be known and then afterwards it's kind of well, iffy, maybe. I don't think so, but we have to recognize it's not a light thing to dream. The, the, the truth of this passage, the encouragement of it, is that my being a vehicle for good in those moments, my being an instrument for mercy is possible not in spite of my weakness and my sin, but because I've been shown mercy in my weakness and in my sin. It, it, it really think about it. It takes infinite righteousness and goodness and holiness and power to be an instrument for good in all your spheres of life. You're not involved in anything that's just, you know, a drop in the bucket, not really that important, because you're going to live forever. And the people that you come into contact with, they're going to live forever. So, so all the spheres of life that you're involved in, they're heavy with significance, and they're very momentous. So it takes infinite righteousness and power and holiness to make a difference for good. And you know what? You have that because you're in Christ. So it's not in spite of your weakness, and it's not in spite of your sin that you're able to be an instrument for righteousness and goodness, but because you're in Christ and you have received mercy for your sin. You've received strength that is his strength in place of your weakness. And that is what enables you to be an instrument for good in all your spheres of life. That's the truth, ultimately, of Romans 9. Because these things don't depend on things that are intrinsic to us, but because of what we've been given in mercy in Christ. Well, let's see it more particularly from our text. So Paul begins our text with a question. It's the second in a litany of four rhetorical questions that, that really frame this chapter. And his question is, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, that question means we have to do some, some level setting, I think, to feel and understand the relevance of this particular passage. So recall that in verses 6 through 13, Paul's project has been to answer the question, at least the implicit question, is or, or has God's word failed? 
To this point in the story of the Church of Rome, their experience has really paralleled the history of the early church. It was majority Jewish at first and minority Gentile, and it's become majority Gentile and minority Jewish. And yet, to the Jewish people belong, as Paul says, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So does that mean that God's word has failed in some significant way? And Paul's answer has been, no, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, we, because we've heard this for a long time and, and we are Gentile graftees into the tree of Israel, we, we maybe don't feel the shock of this as, as much as Paul's first audience would have heard the shock of this. Unless you think this is some deep metaphysical point that's difficult to discern, you can see it clearly written in the history of God's people. And Paul goes through this history a little bit. You know this, for after all, Abraham had a son before Isaac, Ishmael. And yet the sons and daughters of Abraham are not the sons and daughters of Ishmael, but the sons and daughters of Isaac. Even though Abraham had said to God, O Lord, that Israel might live before you. That's my hope and that's my dream. And God replied and said with this promise, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul puts that before it. He says, you know this, you know the history. Therefore, this means that it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That is God's promise, not human reproduction, is what makes children of Abraham. God reserves the right to define people in spite of all of our efforts at self-determination or self-definition. Now, we might say, and I think Paul sort of anticipates this, yeah, okay, but, but that whole story, that's a little bit iffy because, you know, Abraham got mixed up with Sarah's servant, Hagar, and Ishmael wasn't really the son of Abraham and Sarah. He's the son of Abraham and his concubine. And so, you know, that is a little bit, it's not really clear, right? So isn't that why God said that? So Paul goes on, no, because remember when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, namely Isaac, God still reserved the right to define the lineage of his people by choosing Jacob over Esau. And this is not on the basis of who their parents were, because they had the same parents, and not on the basis of what they had done, for they had done up to that point nothing good or evil, but solely on the promise of favor upon Jacob over Esau. So the fact that not all who are descended from Israel physically belong in point of fact to Israel does not mean that the word of God has failed, because it's always been this way. If you would accuse God's word of having failed at this point, on this account, then you have to go all the way back in time to the very beginning of Israel's identity as the people of God and make the same charge, except you couldn't because it wouldn't make any sense. Because the beginning of Israel's identity as the people was not in physical human reproduction, but the appropriation, God's appropriation, of physical human reproduction for God's own purposes to make for himself a people defined by his promise alone. Ishmael was from a human perspective, just as much a child of Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Abraham as Isaac was. And Esau was just as much a child of Isaac and Rebekah as Jacob was. And yet God declares, Paul says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Well, all right then, we come to this point in our story. If God cannot be charged with inconsistency on this point, the question still remains, what about the justice of all this? And so we come to Paul's opening question in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? So let's see how Paul defends the righteousness of God. 
Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, Paul continues by reminding us of what God had spoken to Moses. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a quote from Exodus 33, when Moses is interceding before God for the people of Israel and is proof that God really is with them because up to that point in the story, they'd been behaving just atrociously, and Moses is just so discouraged, and he says, Lord, we, we really just need some definite proof that you're walking before us, that you're really with us, because this is, as you've said it many times before, a really stiff-necked people, and we just keep failing you know, six ways to Sunday and also on Sunday, and we're just getting it all wrong, you know, and we, so we really need some help. We really need some proof that you're walking before us. So, so wouldn't you just pass before me and show me your glory, then I'd really, really know that you were really committed to your people, that your word and your promise wasn't going to fail. And, and God says, Abraham, I mean, uh, J- uh, yeah, uh, Jacob, you don't, uh, Moses, sorry. Moses, <laughs> all of them. Moses, you don't really know what you're talking about. You don't really know what you're asking for, but I will pass before you, but hear this first. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on, on whom I have compassion. That's how God responds. That's how Moses is meant to appropriate the promise of God's favor for his people. To recognize that God's not unjust to show mercy to some and not to others is, is because is, it is consistent with his own character. God's not entering into the lists, so to speak, of our own human conflicts and prejudices to pick one side over the other. No, the reason back behind his mercy is not favoritism, like human favoritism, but his own righteousness, his own righteous character. It's not in anything that we might use to value ourselves or one group of people over another, not our own pretended righteousness or the things that we intend to do. No, it's his own character, his own choosing in the counsel of his own will, his own self-consistency. And that's why Paul continues in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. Another way to translate that is not on human running, but on God who has mercy. Paul goes on to say, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is how Scripture sums up Pharaoh's dealing with God. Remember how that all went down. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God over and over and over again. Massive and amazing and mind-boggling demonstrations of God's power. And Pharaoh, at every turn, hardened his heart against the goodness of the Lord. And Scripture sums that up as God hardened his heart. It, It doesn't seek to split the difference between these two things or explain to us exactly how that happens in the inner dynamics of the human will and working, but it says, Pharaoh saw God's goodness and didn't want anything to do with it. God hardened his heart. It's a deliberate closing of the heart of God, of the human heart to God and his goodness. And so God's choosing is a choosing unto righteousness. I think we can often trip up here a little bit because we often think of the whole dynamic of God's choosing us unto salvation or passing by, passing by others or hardening their heart as God's choosing some to heaven and some to hell or God's choosing some for goodness and some for badness. But the way that Scripture constantly presents it is God's choosing some to righteousness 
and leaving others to their unrighteousness. Now, of course, because we're chosen to righteousness and filled with all the benefits of Christ, we enjoy the heavenly benefits, don't we? But, but the, the, the main thing that is at emphasis in the doctrine of election in Romans 9 is God's choosing us for himself, choosing us to his own righteousness. And so passing by others is not God saying, I'm choosing you to, to, to suffer bad things. It's, no, I'm not giving you what you don't want. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm choosing not to give you my righteousness, which you have shaken your fist at, which you've said, I don't want a thing to do with you, God, or anything of your goodness or your holiness. And so again, Paul sums it up in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So that's Paul's argument. So shall we say there is unrighteousness with God because the promised word of salvation is not given upon any tribal or ethnic or familial or personally meritorious consideration? No, because it is not up to us, but up to God who shows mercy. And God shows mercy and hardens according to the counsel of his own will. So that's Paul's argument. A few thoughts of application for us in the remainder of our time. The theological argument of our text is this. It's in the key truth. God's mercy in Christ is the firm foundation upon which the church takes up her mission for the life of the world. This is how I think we apply this truth, how we take it from a a theological truth that doesn't have much to do with our lives and seek to live it out. We should endeavor to show Christ alone as the foundation of our salvation in everything that we do. I think that's how we apply the truth of Romans 9. Mission, the the mission of the church, our calling to be disciples who make disciples, is us putting into action that song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. If I thought about it earlier, perhaps we could have sung it. We're going to sing another really good song at the close of the sermon, His Mercy is More. But it's putting into action those songs that we sing. In Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, we sing this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or in His Mercy is More, we sing this. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. So our mission, the way in which we actually do that and invite other people into the kingdom of God, the way that we actually grow as disciples who make disciples is to put that into action, to display that in the whole of our lives, in all the spheres of influence that we've been put into. And the way that we're encouraged to do that, I think Paul has it right here in the very hinge of our text in verse 16. It depends, our doing that depends not on human will, not on human exertion, not on our running, but on God who has mercy. It's not on him who wills. The the, the strongest will cannot oppose God's mercy. I've been thinking about this deeply because this past weekend, as I said, we went up to Virginia, and that was to to participate in a celebration of life for my uncle. Let me tell you about Uncle JB, John Brock. We called him Uncle JB. And, And Uncle JB, if you had asked me 10 years ago, on the basis of kind of all that I knew about him, does he follow the Lord? Is he destined for for heaven? I would have said, I I really don't know. Of course, I can't see into the human heart, but it doesn't look good. But towards the end of his life, the testimony, the consistent testimony of his life was that Jesus loves me. 
and I'm hanging on to that with everything that I've got. And maybe I don't understand it in all the ways that I really want to understand it. Yes, I've thrown away countless opportunities to grow in a deeper love and appreciation for the Lord. I've thrown away countless opportunities to witness to that. He struggled with all sorts of things throughout his life. At the end, he died from complications due to emphysema. And it was tough. There were lots of family relationships that were broken people that weren't speaking to him anymore, people that he'd cast aside. And, and, and if we were to, to mark his life this past weekend as the history of all that he'd done up to that point, aside from his faith in Jesus Christ, it would have been a sad thing. But I tell you this, because the last year, years of his life, however imperfectly, were marked by a deep knowledge and appreciation for God's mercy to him in Christ, it was, as it were, as if the, that truth reached back into his past and, and totally reimagined everything else that we'd possibly known about him, all the other things that seemed so broken and seemed so sad, and they didn't seem quite as dead-ending as they did before, quite as, as defining as they did before. It was like mercy had come in and reorganized the whole of his life. And so it was a very sweet thing as we celebrated Uncle JB this past weekend. His mercy is more. Our sins, yes, they're many but his mercy is more. It doesn't depend on him who wills, but on God who has mercy. So this should challenge us, I think, to be grateful for the influence of Christian family. If we've had the privilege to grow up in a Christian family, that, we said this before, it's not an incidental thing, but here's why it's not an incidental thing, because that shapes the narrative of who you think you are. And, and you might think to yourself, well, yeah, but like, Christian families have the same problems as every other family has, and there's lots of brokenness and, and lots of sin. Like, does it really, does it really make a difference? And I'm telling you, yes, it does. Because if all it ever does is convince you that God is merciful, th that is worth the world. Th that can reach back and, and shape and transform everything about the brokenness that, if we just were to focus on that by itself, would seem so story-ending, but it's not. We're like that man who testified to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Man, all I know is Jesus healed me. Who, who is that guy? All I know is that once I was blind, and now I see. Once I had no hope, but now I have hope. And that should also challenge us not to despair. If we haven't had the privilege to grow up in a Christian home, or, or we're looking out about the relationships that are near and dear to us, and, and we, we just long for, for people that we love to come to Christ, and yet it seems so difficult. How do you scale that mountain? How do you say the right thing? How do you, how do you be an influence for good? It just seems so complicated. It should challenge us not to despair. It doesn't depend on human will, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't depend on him who runs. Not on him who has a lot of exertion, not on him who can do mighty things for God's kingdom. The advance of God's kingdom is not dependent upon our exertion. We may need to sit and let that just sort of work its way into our hearts and minds, because that's not usually the way we tend to think about it, is it? And I've even noticed it in the past two years, some of the language that we speak, and don't take this wrongly, I don't mean totally con to condemn this, this phrase, because I understand the heart behind it. But I often heard people say, in, in the face of some, you know, catastrophe or, or just discouragement in life, well, at least we know God will win. Now, yes, yes and amen, but the, the, the consistent witness of the New Testament, the consistent witness of the biblical story is not God will win, but God has won in Christ Jesus. Jesus has already defeated sin, death, and the devil. He's already brought the kingdom to bear. 
And like Hebrews 2 says, yes, some days, maybe most days, it's hard to see it, but the truth is, he's already reigning. Now, the, the way that the illustration that kind of gripped me, that helped me to see the truth of this and, and not just say, well, I guess I'm a Christian, so I got to believe that, but to, to really see it, it was given by a, a professor of mine in, in seminary. And he said this it's sort of like the turning point of the Second World War. Remember, after, after the Allies invaded Normandy, everyone who could see the relative position and strength of the Allies and the relative position and strength of the Axis powers, Germany, and so on, they could see it's over. The war is practically over. There's no way they can win. There's no way that they can ever push back. Inevitably, they will be retreating and retreating. This is, this is over. And yet, after Normandy was some of the hardest fighting in the entirety of the world, war. I mean, just shortly after that, in the, the winter of 1944, you had the Battle of the Bulge, and you had massive casualties and massive desperation. It just seemed almost, if you were just to look at that in, in the light of that battle alone, pretty hopeless. And yet the victory was already assured. There was no way Hitler was going to win. Now, it, it, that's a small picture, but it's much like that in the inbreaking of God's kingdom now. Christ Jesus has already won. And yes, some of the hardest fighting is today and maybe even before us, but Jesus has already won. So it doesn't depend on our exertion. It doesn't depend on us to bring in the kingdom or to do mighty things for God as if we could do it in our own strength. No, we want to do mighty things for God, but because He's already won. The victory is certain and sure. So how should we live? By, by more explicit statements of Christian ethics? Yes, we need it for sure. We need to be clear-eyed about what God calls us to and what he commands, and yet it will ultimately ring hollow unless we display God's mercy in Christ. It's so easy. It's so easy as we look about the world to slip into anger, far too easy, or, and lose the gospel in the process I often think of, again, I heard this from the same professor in, in seminary, uh, a Chicago radio host who was uh, a secular Jewish man and uh, his, his, um, uh, interviewer, kind of like Larry King. He, could just, he, could, he, had, he had all these interesting guests on, and he could really draw their personal stories out and get them to talk about really neat and interesting things. And one time he had three Christians on his radio show. One was from a mainline, fairly liberal denomination. One was kind of middle of the road, wasn't really sure what he believed, and he had an evangelical Christian. And so he sat them in his studio, and he said, all right, I'm you know, a well-beloved uh, figure in Chicago. I do lots of good uh, for the, the city of Chicago. People can testify to that. You can ask anybody you like. They'll say I'm a good person. I'm also a secular Jew. Now, if you're right, if Jesus really is the Messiah, there's no hope for me when I pass away. So give me your best shot. Why should I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, the first guy from the mainline denomination says, well, yeah, let's not be too hasty here. You know, after all, God reveals himself in all sorts of different ways, and you know, maybe you don't really need to believe in Jesus to, to have life eternal. So you know, I don't worry about it too much. After all, you've got a good reputation in the, in the community. You do lots of good things. The guy in the middle, he sort of waffled, and he's like, well, you know, I don't want to be too dogmatic about it one way or the other. So finally he gets to the evangelical Christian, and he tries to speak. He tries to say why he should come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and he can't do it. He just immediately starts weeping. And, and there's lots of dead air, and if you know anything about radio, that's bad to have dead air, you know. But he just can't, he can't get it. Multiple times he tries to, but he just can't. He's just weeping for the guy. And, and so after about four minutes of this, finally the radio host turns to him and says, you know what, you don't have to say anything. That's the best argument for Jesus I've ever heard in my life. 
Now, that guy, that evangelical Christian, didn't walk into that radio station thinking to himself, all right, the way to get to this radio host is just to burst into tears. <laughs> and if he had done that cynically, it probably wouldn't have worked. But, but just so overcome with the display of God's mercy for him in Christ was enough to recognize there's something here that's different than everything else on offer. So it's not of him who runs. It's not of our exertion. We don't handle these things. We don't control them. We're invited into them, into the great work that God is doing in the power of the Holy Spirit to, to grow his kingdom. It's of God who has mercy. The, the doctrine of election, the, the, the idea of God's choosing some and passing by over others, is, it, it, it is complex. It is weighty. It's something that we have to stand before and oftentimes just put our hands over our mouths in wonder and awe and impatience. And yet I can't help but to think, that of all the times in which Scripture opens this up before us and proclaims this mystery to us, you have it clearly in Isaiah 46. And, and how does God proclaim it in Isaiah 46? By leading them up to it, by reminding them, hey, I'm the one who carried you in your mother's womb, and to gray hairs I will carry, I will bear, and I will save. Well, why should you run after other gods who can explain all the mysteries, so they think, to you on earth, and yet they're just dumb idols? They can't hear you. They can't respond back to you. Don't do that. I'm the one who carries and, and saves. From your very birth to gray hairs, I will carry you. And I'm the one who works all things together according to the counsel of my will. No one can stay my hand or say to me, what have you done? So all the time in Scripture, you have these two weighty and grady truths combined together. I have mercy. That's where we have to land as God's people. So how might we apply this in the spheres of influence that God has put us in, in our workplaces? We are entering into a time, we've been here for a while, really, but we're entering into a time in which I think it's going to be more explicit, in which explicit proclamations of Christian ethics are going to be increasingly more and more frowned upon. Or probably rather, the explicit and coerced endorsement of anti-Christian ethics is going to become expected, more and more expected. And that's going to hit the workplace pretty deeply. And some of you have already told me the ways in which you've had to work through that and think through that. What would it look like for us as God's people to imagine, to creatively imagine with hope, because it doesn't depend on human running, doesn't depend on our wills, that we might be that one person who could change the whole direction of a company? Is that too much for God to do? No. Not because we have it in our own strength or power, but because it doesn't depend on our will. It doesn't depend upon our running. What would it look like for us to be people who are ambassadors of mercy in our workplaces? What would it be like for us to be ambassadors of mercy in the political realm? It's so easy to, to get up in arms about all the things that we see. What would, it, what would it be like for us to be ambassadors of mercy as we talk about people we disagree with, even in leadership in Washington, D.C.? What would it be like for, for us to be ambassadors of mercy in our family and our relationships, the people that we really long to see come to faith in Jesus, and yet so often we, we, we know them deeply, they know us deeply, we see all the inhibitions, the obstacles to that. What would it be like for us to be ambassadors of mercy? So I want to bring us to a close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I've been chewing on this ever since I read it a few weeks ago, and to be perfectly honest with you, I think I would have stuck this quote in here no matter what the text was this morning, because I love it that deeply. But praise be to God, it matches very, very closely with the way I think we can apply this to our lives. As Charles Spurgeon was, was thinking about what does it look like for God's people to be God's people in their spheres of influence, he had this to say. 
He says, if I find I want to labor much, I must live on Jesus only. If I desire to suffer patiently, I must feed on Jesus only. If I wish to wrestle with God successfully, I must plead Jesus only. If I aspire to conquer sin, I must use the blood of Jesus only. If I pant to learn the mysteries of heaven, I must seek the teachings of Jesus only. I believe that anything which we add to Christ lowers our position, and that the more elevated our soul becomes, that is, the more nearly like what it is to be when it shall enter into the region of the perfect, the more completely everything else will sink, die out, and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus only will be first and last and midst and without end, the alpha and omega of every thought of head and pulse of heart. May it be so with every Christian. Amen. If we want to be ambassadors for good, if we want to make a difference for good in the lives of everyone we come into contact with, we must look to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus only. So Romans 9, 14 through 18 teaches us that we will grow, we will certainly grow in our missional engagement for the life of the world the less we depend upon our own will and exertion and the more we depend upon God who has mercy. Two questions for us as we wrap up and think about how to apply this. What hope do you have for the gospel to be heard and to bear fruit in your various spheres of influence? And then really practically, how can we as a church family serve to equip and encourage you as you seek to demonstrate the mercy of God in Christ in these places? Some of you are already doing this in all sorts of unique and, and wonderful and creative ways. You're bearing with one another patiently. You're using the gifts that God has given you so that you, you can encourage others as they seek to walk through difficult relationships and to be ambassadors for Jesus in difficult places. Others of you have still to lean in, so I just encourage you, lean in. The, the, the great benefit of us being knit together as the family of God with all of our different stories and all of our different proclivities and, and tendencies and personalities is that each of us has the opportunity to be an ambassador for Jesus and encouragement as we seek each other to be ambassadors for Jesus. So use that. There, there is a wealth of resource even in this very room. I encourage you, lean in. This is how we can be the people of God for each other, how we can be missionally engaged on the foundation that it doesn't rest upon our own will and exertion but upon God who has mercy. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for the gospel. Lord, it seems that every day, and particularly every Sunday, as we hear from your word and we lean into all that you've called us to be in Christ Jesus, that we learn, as it were, a new side of the gospel and, and a new aspect of it, to, of it is lifted up to us and we see just how glorious, how gloriously gracious and merciful you have been to us. And so, Lord, would we be encouraged by this truth? There is no end to the encouragement that we will derive from the gospel the more we look to Jesus, Jesus only. So, Lord, help us to do it. Help us, Lord, to see in the truth of Romans 9 the great and wonderful and awesome and terrifying at times truth of your sovereign election of your people, that this is the greatest encouragement we could ever hope for to be involved in our spheres of influence for the life of the world. If it did, Lord, we'd be quickly overwhelmed in our own families, in our own workplaces, in our own spheres of influence to be ambassadors of mercy. So help that to be front and center, Lord, in our minds. Help us not to slip into anger, to fears and anxieties. Lord, help us to be merciful as you have shown mercy to us. It is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.